Charlie, uh, good morning, and thank you so much for being uh, with us here in this this episode, in which, uh, if we are talking about the the soccer business from the U.S. perspective, everyone that I know in the industry told me, I mean, you need to talk with Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That's too kind of you. No, it's good. It's it's real. It's real. Thank you to to Boris who who made the connection. And, Boris uh, is the best, and here's a man that really knows the uh, the football business from the media side. He's a dear friend and incredibly competent. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Uh, it's uh, one of the top executives I met in my my career. is uh, is a great guy. Also, is a great guy. Excellent. So, so Charlie, basically. To frame a little bit the conversation, what we want to start with is basically with, with your own story, kind of, you know, where you come from, how you got involved into soccer, and then we'll try to, to flow through the last 30-something years of soccer in the U.S. and how that intertwines with, you know, the, the business that we know it in, in Europe. Sure. No, I'm more than happy. I mean, I can tell you my whole life in about two, three minutes, which I guess is kind of sad, but... You know, came from a, a working class family. Parents came from Italy. They actually met here from the same hometown. There's a little province of Calabria in America called Brooklyn, Brooklyn in New York. And we, you know, normal kids grew up loving American sports, but also loving football, our soccer. And, you know, typical immigrant communities that we grew up in and and were around and actually played for a German soccer team. And we had all these Italian kids playing for a German soccer team. And the, the, the guy who was running the club was Rudy Burkhardt. So they used to call it Rudy's Italian Army, uh, <laughs> our little team. But played for Elizabeth Sport Club that the senior team won two, S, two U.S. Open Cups. So we were sort of steeped in it. And it was a very successful club. And done in the club system of this is before there was youth soccer. So it was done in the system of the really of the, I would call it uh, the European sense, you know, so very much a club European sense. And when you're a little kid, you try to grow up and be a member of that club. You know, along came the Cosmos and North American Soccer League. And I had some tryouts in the North American Soccer League. I played at university at Princeton where I was an All-American, and I only get to say it in moments like this because no <laughs> one remembers or cares. And then I, I played a little bit in the American Soccer League for a year. I coached with Bob Bradley. We went back to Princeton. Bob was the head coach. I was his assistant. As he reminds me, he was the boss. I was the number <laughs> two. Did that for three years. Went to law school down the road at Rutgers and stayed involved with football, soccer, after the North American Soccer League collapsed in 83. Right. I graduated in 81, and so the league was really done by 82. And so there was no league, and I helped with the youth and amateur soccer associations in New Jersey. The amateurs were more, I guess we call it adult soccer now, were more the ethnic groups, the, my father and his friends and other, other ethnic groups. In those days, it was Spanish and from Spain and uh, Germany, England, uh, Italy, you know, it was more the Europeans. Scots. Connecting, connecting with the roots, right? Exactly. Back and that was really our identity. 
was was football was our identity made us different from other people but made from typical americans you would see in the 60s yeah. and 70s right but from it brought us together the immigrants sort of together and and kids of the immigrants and then we i was a lawyer and through crazy circumstances i ended up it's a whole nother story but take another 10 minutes but i ended up with befriending a, a buddy of mine worked for the governor of New Jersey and this governor Florio at the time and he was in governor Florio's cabinet and we were lawyers together and when Italy was playing Portugal in the qualifiers for the 94 World Cup this was must have been 92 he he was at the the lunch at this Portuguese and Spanish section of Newark, New Jersey called uh, down the neck Newark. It was called the Ironbound section. And uh, today it's all Brazilians and Ecuadorians and uh, Dominicans and everyone. It's a mix today. Back then it was all Portuguese and it must have been 500,000 Portuguese living in the, in the community. Oh, and so it was like walking down Lisbon when you walk down the street. So you went to the restaurants there and there was many Iberian restaurants and someone said to the governor, hey, congratulations for having the World Cup. And they all sat around, looked and he what? said, oh, thank you, thank you, as any good politician. And he said, well, what's the World Cup? I better find out. And my friend was at the table and said, I know a guy who knows who the World Cup is. So knows what the World Cup is. So I literally had to go and give the governor's office a a 101 on on football, and I have to say it's FIFA, not FIFA. This is where yeah. UEFA, where Concacaf. You know, you have to understand this is, you know, early 90s, and uh, no one knew anything. There was no professional league, and uh, somehow I I worked my way into being the venue executive director for New York, New Jersey World Cup in 94. And for the FIFA people, I was a very nice person for them to meet. I was, you know, educated, I knew football and they were from Europe and they were comfortable with me. So I could speak Italian to a lot of the yeah. Swiss guys that were there and the other people. And they felt like, oh good, someone who knows football. Yeah. So we ran a very successful World Cup out of our New York, New Jersey area. We had our challenges. I mean, it's still amazing today that people don't realize that we were frightened to death that there would be no tickets sold because soccer was soccer then. There was no yeah. league for 10 years. And, you know, people don't realize this. You know, we we're like, oh, my God, what if no one shows up? But it, it turned out to be a very successful World Cup. I carried Italy on my back to the final. And then <laughs> afterwards... Afterwards, I think Baggio had a little more in Saki than I you, had to do. With you, it, you, 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 could, you couldn't shoot the penalty kick. So, I mean, no, that's... I couldn't. I, I took him that far and I couldn't do it. And then, so uh, after that, I became the first general manager of the Metro Stars. And I brought over people that were, by now, the community had become, there's still a very big Italian community. And we brought over Roberto Donadoni and we brought over Eddie Fermani, who was the manager of the Cosmos, to be the manager, Tab Ramos, and Tony Miola were the first signings. And just those four signings, we had 10,000 season tickets. So we did really, really well. And I think the challenge there was that everyone thought, 
oh, they're the Cosmos again, this great team. Yeah. But after those four, they were clearly our four best. <laughs> you know? And so after the four, we had college kids who weren't used to being professionals, et cetera. And I think there was a growing pains throughout the league. And so I stayed there for four seasons. I worked for the owners, John Kluge, for six years in total. Then I went and I started my own company called uh, Champions World, which was the first company to bring the tours to play big teams against big club teams, you know, and our first, our first game was Real Madrid against Roma. And yeah, not bad. And, you know, Capello was the manager of Roma and Del Bosque was the manager of Real Madrid. Right. And they had on their teams, uh, this is right before pre-Beckham. So, but it was Zidane, Figo, Roberto Carlos. On Roma was Batistuta, Totti, Cafu. You know, this was not a little teams. Yes. And no one had ever been successful in bringing club teams over, like to fill giant stadium. Uh, sure, yeah. the Cosmos did it on their own or when they played somebody, but not for international games. And we took a shot at it. We did it with Kofi Annan. We did it to fight AIDS and we raised a half a million dollars. It's funny. I look back on it now. We actually only made $23,000 and we gave away 500,000 to the UN fight for AIDS. So I was very proud of that. Yep. And we just got into the business. We did different things, you know, that I think people weren't used to doing. And we started, we launched the Champions World Series in 2003, where we had Manchester United, you know, Manchester United's tour. In, in those days, I remember, I remember Florentino Perez saying, we're never going to play a big team again, because the stands were half Roma, half Real Madrid. Yep. And he said, I want it to be all Real Madrid. All Madrid. <laughs> and I said, I understand what you want, Prezi, because you're a Prezi, still Prezi. Yeah. You know? and uh, a man I admire and respect. And I said, but, you know, I think that the cream will rise, you know, and the big clubs, it's more exciting for people to see you play Roma and Bar Manchester United and Barcelona than it is to play against the local team. And so a lot of managers agreed with me, Sir Alex Ferguson, Carlo Ancelotti, Jose Mourinho, to name like three that were really like the idea of playing competitive games in preseason. And in fact, Sir Alex Ferguson said he learned from Jose Mourinho because Jose Mourinho won the league the first two years with Chelsea. And Sir Alex said that the difference was that he started really strong in those years. Yep. And he, and maybe the, the preseasons were looked before that as sort of just marketing campaigns right um but they started and sir alex and jose and carl took it very seriously and you know this all goes back to that real madrid roma in 2002 that i remember august 8 2002 it sticks in my head that someone said yeah but this is just a friendly game and i remember capello saying well let me ask you this with these guys behind us at the table and you put 75,000 people in the building. You think this is a friendly game? You think they don't want to win? And yeah. Del Bosque said, absolutely, same thing, right? And so 
I, that's when it might caught my imagination. I said, we can recreate this because none of these guys want to want to fail, you know, in front of the fans. Yeah. And so it was very successful. And then after it ran its time, and then I joined a creative artist agency and I brought them their, I really started their football business with a guy named Doc O'Connor, one of their partners. And we brought over Cristiano Ronaldo and George Mendez's people to do their commercial department. We brought yep. over Chelsea, Barcelona. So we started a consulting business basically along with touring. And then after that, I went to work for Steve Ross yep. here at the owner of the Miami Dolphins, my present jefe. And Steve Ross is the, uh, really, he wanted to bring games to Miami originally, but then quickly he said, no, let's expand this business. Let's do a global tournament. And the rest is history. Absolutely. And, and you've been uh, quite successful in actually capturing the imagination of fans across the globe which which is something that that you know that's why we are in sports it's it's about that the business revolves around that and it's very i i i pick up in in the way you things are relevant and how you set up the acc and and all of the other events that you do globally and it resonates something that i that people from the nba I, i've been working in basketball mostly in my career mm -hmm. with your league here in europe and and they say When, when we create this, you know, entertainment piece, which is sport, we think not only about the fans that go to the arena, but we think about the 99% of the fans that are across the globe that will never set foot in the, in, in the NBA arena. And that's why we, why we do it. And, and actually, when you match that with, you know, with coaches and teams that have that desire to win always, even the friendlies, you know, magic happens and, and, and you are sending out NFL stadiums, actually. Uh, yeah, and, and there's a great story behind that. In the 1994 World Cup, before the first game, in those days, they never had a reverse angle camera. It was new to the game. I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about it, you know? So they had the reverse angle camera right in front of the fourth officials table. And, uh, and I remember saying to the guy, God, I can't think of his name now, but a great guy. And he was the director, producer of putting the whole thing together. And it was before the game. And it was right in front of the fourth officials table where I was sitting with the FIFA representative. Okay. And it was uh, Italy, Ireland, opening of the, the tournament for New York. Huge game, huge event. And the FIFA guy said to me, Charlie, tell him to move the camera now. Move the camera because I can't see it and nor can the fourth official see this. Move the camera. And I said to the guy, and this is my first real lesson in this. I said to the guy, I think his name was Mike. I said, Mike, can you move the camera, you know, a few yards? He said to me, don't worry about the 800 million people that are going to watch the game today. Worry about you four guys sitting over here behind the, <laughs> behind the camera. And it really sunk in, you know what I mean? That... You can get lost when you're doing an event and thinking, yeah. okay, this is, you know, I'm responsible for the security on the field and blah, blah, blah. And you, you, you sometimes you, you, you need to understand that it's more than just that moment, you know, and like you're saying perfectly, it's, it puts things in perspective. And ever since that day, I had a newfound respect for, yeah, that's right. Because I may be watching this and, you know, so honestly, the referee, the fourth official should move his chair. 
right? That's yeah. all that should happen. It shouldn't be a big deal. You know, let's move his chair a couple of feet. Yeah. But instead, you know, you're you're thinking in that moment of, of, of different things, things that may be important to you. You need to understand they're important to a lot of people. And actually, uh, speaking a little bit around the, the night before uh, World Cup, which, you know, to all extents is a catalyst of, you know, how soccer has grown in the U.S. and how people perceive soccer now, you know, a lot of things came out of that, as you, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of successful teams, the MLS on the back of that and, and all that. Even for me, I'm, I'm from the Dominican Republic. We have a lot of influence from, from the U.S. And, you know, we are a baseball country, then basketball, then other things. But I remember that my first soccer memory is actually out of the World Cup in 94. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not on the field. It was a Pele promotion with Pizza Hut, which basically oh, took yeah, over yeah. the whole region. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And, and that capture, you know, the imagination of, you know, many kids in the Dominican, which by far we are not a soccer country, and, and we started engaging with the event. So the, I think the, the potential or, or what the U.S. did in terms of the way, the American way of things, you know, the Americanization of soccer, as you said, in the production, we are, we are thinking about the 100 million people here. We are trying to produce something, marketing what was probably at its best. And again, it, it was in non-soccer specific uh, venues, which had a, you know, a monstrosity to it that made it, I, I think, you know, part to none in, in the history of World Cups. Yeah, I think that the World Cup really grew up in, in 94. I think the first tournament, you're, you're younger than me. You should be happy about that. But the first tournament that it, this was really the first tournament that was not in a football crazy country. Right. And it's very important to think when I was a kid, it was always going to Europe, then South America, Europe, then South America. And this is how it would do. And the Intercontinental Cup was played and it was between the champions of club champions of Europe versus the club champions of of South America. And this is where football was. And in 86, the tournament was supposed to go to Colombia, but they had an earthquake hmm. and they moved it to Mexico. And to be fair to them, they did an amazing job, but it was a football tournament. It wasn't really more than that. Yeah. And I don't mean it was a huge football tournament, but it was a football tournament in a football country. Right. Then 90 went to Italy and it was the first time they started doing marketing things. You know, models walking around the stadium and, you know, and this is something that was so it was the first time it was done with a little bit of a call, a little bit of flair, a little bit of the idea. And it was really more built around the idea of fashion and culture and food. And that was great. Right. But America was truly a marketing. You know, this was going to be a showcase for the game. And FIFA, I think, has since that time has actually done that, has made it a showcase when they can in a country, a huge country that had no soccer heritage. Let's be honest. I mean, yes, it had, we actually did great in the 34 World Cup. People don't realize that. We beat England in 1950. So we have a little history, but it was ethnic. And somehow, it became a foreign sport. 
you're a baseball fan. I remember talking to a cousin of Albert Pujols, by the way, and they were, you know, they were talking about, you know, the, how important, you know, baseball is in, in, in Dominican Republic. And I get that. Right. And, and, you know, we didn't have anything like that for soccer in America. It really wasn't. And when I grew up, this is how old I am. The big sports were boxing, horse racing, and baseball. That's it. And not in that order. Baseball, 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 then horse racing, then boxing, maybe. Right? NBA didn't exist really before Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. I was born in 59. American football didn't become big till 69 with Joe Willie Namath. You know, so people, you know, and this, it's almost inconceivable to think of the U.S. that doesn't have the NFL and college, you know, huge, you know, huge. In fact, college football was much bigger than the the NFL NFL. and all the other sports. So, you know, it has evolved over time. And the World Cup really, I think, took its big step in 94, where it was no longer promoted to just soccer fans and soccer country, but they're saying we need to do something completely to convince these people to become soccer fans. I remember a Stern, the commissioner of the NBA, the late David Stern, right? Where I remember seeing him at a conference and he said, they were saying, who's your big competition and this and that. And he said, there's only one competition for us. That's And this is years ago maybe 15, 20 years ago, said there's only one competition, it's soccer. And uh, that's the, who we're fighting for, for global you know, dominance or whatever you want to say for those fans. So I, I think the 94 World Cup, you hit it on the head. It was really a big turning point. Oh, it, it was. And actually, if, if you look at, you know, from the general perspective into world sports, 94 happens two years after the Barcelona Olympics, which was a game changer in the Olympic movement as well. Sure was. That, that's when basketball started going global. Dream Team, Barcelona, everyone kind of got hooked to it. And, and you know, the rest is history. And actually, I think that that's, that's a, a style of productization or packaging sports and entertainment that actually is something that has, you know, been proven across decades that works in terms of looking at it from the entertainment value of it. And actually, you know, that's, that's the big leap that soccer is having within the U.S., but actually globally. And actually, you know, in, in, in comparing styles, uh, you, you know this better than, than anyone. We always, from the European perspective, get into the conflict of, you know, who kind of manages better or what is the most important thing to manage when you're managing sport is looking at it from an enterprise perspective like the americans or it's you know the the greedy sports at the core which you know in the end the bottom line dictates you know much of what you can do anyhow what's your take into that that duality in terms of the the european versus the american management style in sports that is a fascinating question you know and i think that you know, in America, the big difference is, and you hit on it with the Olympics, right? They don't forget the Olympics would always go from America to a couple of countries, then to America, then back to yeah. America, back to America. Well, it's 
Well, I had a dear friend, Giorgio Canaglia, that played for the Cosmos. He passed away now. He was my radio partner, and we used to coach my daughter's teams together. It was so funny. And he used to say to me, I said, what do you think it is, Giorgio? And he'd say to me, it's the money, you moron, he'd say to me like that. And I know we would laugh. And, you know, it really is, from American perspective, they say it as, you shouldn't be ashamed to make money. And this is something that is really, um, there is a vision. It's still prevalent today in Germany, and you see it, where the clubs will say, this belongs to us, 50 plus one. And, you know, they throw tennis balls on the field when it's more than 75 euros, the game, this is crazy. How could you not care about us, the fan? And I think that, you know, the American mentality is completely different. Someone said to me one time, he worked for a big television company. I won't say which one or the, he says, you know, one thing's funny about the NFL owners, they make no mistake about it. The only thing they care about is money for themselves. And yes, they care about the fans, the experiences, but ultimately they want to do the best deal, best financial deal that they could do for them and their partners. And it's not seen as a dirty word, you know? Yep. And, and I remember that, you know, the biggest challenge we had in the 94 World Cup was all the people out there would say, what are you guys doing making money on this? This is a sport we love. It's a volunteer sport. Keep in mind that even the president of FIFA didn't get paid, right? Now, it leads to corruption. That's a whole nother problem, yeah. right? But I'm saying for the typical fan, for my father and his buddies growing up, and even me to a degree, it's like you prove that you're a fan by putting the net up. I'm sure it's the same way in the Dominican Republic. You know, you line the field, you do the thing. You're not asking for $10 to line the field. You're going to line the field because your kid's going to play later and you're going to, you know, and you're going to give your heart and soul and you're a true fan. You're, a tr you're give back to the game. You don't ask the game to give you anything. Eh? You just, you're, you're doing this because you're a good person. The opposite's true for, in their minds. They're saying, well, if you're getting money, you must be a bad person. <laughs> you know, you must be doing this yeah. just for the money. I think that that American mentality is, is not to not be ashamed of making money. But by the way, it was still there in 94. I'm telling you, the way people look at it was, I give to the game, so you need to give me a free ticket. I shouldn't pay for the ticket. That's the that's the standard. Look, FIFA has it today, the Tribune of Honor. There are tickets that are set out that are not for sale. Why? Because they're giving people what they deserve for all they've given to the game. I mean, it trickles down even to the lowest level of things where the person's like, well, I'm the president of the Youth Soccer Association. I should have 10 free tickets. And we had to we had to break them of that to basically say, in order for us to pay for this, in order for us to create a league afterwards, in order for us to leave a legacy, everyone's got to pay. And you shouldn't, it shouldn't be ashamed to do that. And I think that's the real difference. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm saying yeah. that I think that's that's still prevalent in a lot of what you see in Europe. And you know, the 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 bad part of that is that, you know, you're reliant on really wealthy yep. patrons to keep you alive, right? 
And that works for a while, but now you see even in Europe, they're having troubles after the pandemic. It's a challenge, right? So, you know, Europe's changed already. Europe's become very Americanized when it comes to the ownership in Europe, yep. when it comes to how they market the game, they are absolutely every bit as advanced, if not more advanced than Americans. But back in 94, you know, you go back even a little before that, Franz Beckenbauer, Giorgio Canaglia, Pele, made more here playing for the Cosmos than they could make playing for Bayern Munich Insane. or Lazio. I mean, that's how it was. You know, we're going to pay you this money and you're going to perform for us. That's the American way. I'm not saying good or bad, but you bring up a great distinction. And you still see it today. Like I said, they feel like, well, look at the Super League thing. Look yep. at the Super League. You know, it was... It wasn't killed because it was a bad idea. It never even got to the point where you debated if it was a good idea or a bad idea. It got killed because it was a bunch of greedy Americans that the were behind the, fr the framing in, in telling the story wasn't right. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and actually that's kind of the what's in 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 the basis of you know kind of this specific series that we're doing, because actually when I, I have the privilege also to, to teach in certain classes, sports management and so on. And, 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 and you get the, the comments from the romantics of the game, you sure. know, the, and, and, and that's understandable. But I'm romantic. End, yeah. I'm romantic. I'm a, I'm a romantic. I'm an AC Milan fan since, you know, I remember seeing Paolo Maldini's first game. You know what I mean? I, I went to see the semifinal Euros at Paolo's house. We were sitting there together having dinner and watching the game. Exactly. He later accused me of eating 10 mozzarella balls, <laughs> which was quite embarrassing. But I'm a romantic. You know, I understand yeah. that point of view. I grew up with that. I grew up with being a volunteer. Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, so, but I also, I'd like to think the best clubs find the balance. The best nations find the balance, you know, I think a good example is, you know, Bayern Munich, the way they've been able to sort of find a balance of football and business. There's a lot of clubs. I don't want to leave out. Look, this year, Real Madrid made money where yeah. everyone else lost a fortune. Okay, they broke even. They had to sell players and this and that, but they were trying to keep it a business, right? Exactly. Keep the business alive, but it's still a football club. At its core, When you talk to all those guys, it's still about when you talk to President Perez or Carlines Rubinek, it's still about yeah. how we do this year. And then later you say to them, on the field, I mean, and then later you say, oh, we've made money. He said, look, we made money. Yeah. But that comes second. You know, exactly. the first important thing is, did we win a trophy? Yeah, and, and it's a close second because if they do well economically, that means that next year they can go after the next trophy. So it, right. in the end, It's all about providing stability to, a, to an enterprise, even if it's not a company, because the shareholders of that company, the socios of Real Madrid, will demand a winning team. That's what they want. And you need to pay players, evidently within reason. And in greater part, the kind of the crisis in, in European soccer, it you know, has been exacerbated by, by the pandemic. But we've been seeing this coming for a while you know spiraling cause and people kind of trying to you know the hunger of winning makes you do certain you know makes you take well, certain dumb decisions right but 
but actually that's 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 the reality that that you need to find a balance in cost control which the germans do very well in general i think la liga is putting kind of putting the, controls in place right now and correct. they're hoping to do it england has almost endless money right now so it's you they know don't, it's, they don't have any problems so. yeah and in italy they have a lot of american owners now and north american owners they're trying to bring a business sense to it once somebody said one time to me, when you know you hear all these people with the the ultras rioting making problems different things and someone said to me one time yeah and i remember seeing a game fiorentina against uh parma and then italy in those days they used to have where you're from the license plate was where you're from yeah so it's really kind of stupid really to think about it because you're inviting someone to smash your car right if <laughs> yeah. you park there right and I'm, i think they've done away with that i'm 99 sure they've done away with that but and i remember someone saying but geez why can't i said why can't they just tell these ultras to you know not come to the stadium kick them out you know and he said well what would we be without these ultras and the songs and the singing and the flags they, they, it's part of the experience of going to yeah. The game, yeah so it's it's finding that balance, right? In England, they lost the balance completely in the 70s and 80s with the, the terrible- out of hand, yeah. Out of hand. And, but can you find that balance where your place like Dortmund, it's a community club, yeah. but it's, you know- Outstanding. 80,000 yeah. people a game and this and that. But their balance is, well, we have to sell players every year because we only make 40 million euros a year in the stadium and Chelsea is half their size and Chelsea makes 10 times the amount of money we make. Right. So how do you find the balance? And it's it's not easy. And, and you know, look, financial fair play came into it. Some would argue to make the well, UEFA would argue to make the the game more stable. And then and, and I say that there's always unintended consequences that people don't think about. And the unintended consequences was all it did is make the big clubs big. And the small club, small, <laughs> you could never do, you could never do what Barcelona did. If financial fair play, don't forget Barcelona didn't win their first champions league till 92. Yep. Okay. And if financial fair play was in place, then, you know, the top 20 teams, 16 would be Italian, you know, in those days. Right. But what happens? Financial fair play comes into effect in 2010, really 2008, 9, 10, around that time. The English teams are, are primarily, you know, filled with money. And you look, the, the, a few big teams in Spain and two big teams in Spain, one in Germany, one in France, you know, down the road yet, right? It's still coming along at this moment. They're big, so they can spend what they make. And, yep. and you even have, now you have the two, the two uh, biggest clubs in the world financially are PSG and City. Man City, right? And so it's hard. I don't, oh, you know, yeah. I know that it was really well intended. When I talked to my friends at UEFA that helped implement financial fair play, they're like, look, the, the world is healthier now. Most teams are still in business. And I said, okay, but one of the unattended consequences is that the same teams win every year now. Yeah. Right. And so know, it's it's very keen to even to politics. It's it's, it's a governance issue in, in reality, 
because when you see the, the construct of the European Union, when they put measures for everyone, you know, not all, not all economies are the same. <laughs> so Exactly. And they don't so even do the accounting the same. Yeah, correct. I mean, no, the taxes aren't the same. Right. They're, they're, so, Nothing's you know, you need the same. And they say, but we're going to treat you all the same. It's like, it's, it's yeah. truly uh, a challenge, huh? I'm being nice when I say that. No, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, I used to say also when, when I worked full time at the yearly that if there's a job that I don't want in the industry is to be the head of one of those organizations. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I, I rather run for office, you know, <laughs> and let the people have a saying that actually do that. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Yeah, look, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a political job, but you need to be a businessman. Or a business person i won't yeah. say man anymore right but you need to be a, a, a really astute business person to find a solution and it's a solution across different languages different borders different taxes as you said so perfectly and you're trying to come up with one solution for everyone uh again you'll you'll, I, I, you'll, you'll never hit and you will always miss that's that's no that's and look now with the whole uh, super league debacle problem whatever you want to call it or issues around it you know now the head of the eca is you know a team owned by you know nasser who's a friend of mine a good man you know but he literally is the head of the european club association and the team that owns him is not even european the people that own him aren't even european and by the way it's a state outside yeah. of europe you know and so the same thing for man city and it's Again, I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying it creates at least the appearance of like, this is what, how's this going to solve things, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I, I don't, uh, you said it perfectly. I don't wish this upon anyone to do that. I certainly <laughs> but, don't want to do that. No, definitely. And I think that, you know, after the PR battle and the public opinion battle, the court of public opinion battle, uh, I think that the problems persist Absolutely. and 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 sooner or later we need to come into that realization that the model needs changing probably needs you know tweaking but i i did read that approach of the super league as an opening to having a debate not as our you know one size fits all which you know that's kind of the the challenge right now to to find a way to back to the table right which is very very difficult after you burn certain bridges that, that were burned but but you know that's that's kind of the thing charlie in, in closing I, I want to get your take now basically on the next decade of u.s soccer mm. now having the 26 world cup coming back do you see you know that also as, a, as an accelerator, like it happened in the, in 94, but now in a grander stage, do you see that that will shift the center of power in, mm. in world soccer governance from Europe to the Americas? I don't know, what's, what's your take on that? Well, you've asked some good questions here. I wanna sit in your class when you teach <laughs> the class. The, uh, look, the, America has a challenge. The challenge is uh, the MLS has done a great job with the MLS has done an amazing job with the fan experience. And I was the first employee of major league soccer. Not that I take any credit at all because they kicked me out, but 
they it is it has grown and it's a wonderful fan event so i go to the stadium and you know what i need to move that camera at the midfield station <laughs> if it's blocking a view of 20 30 40 people because the problem is they're MLS's competitor is not the NFL even. It's not the NBA. It's not hockey. Their challenge, their competitor is the English Premier League. Yep. La Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga, Champions League. You know, that's their competitor because at the end of the day, the way to make real, real money is through TV. And, yep. uh, you know, your friend and my friend Boris knows that selling La Liga rights, uh, you know, in the U.S. And very successfully, he and Danny and have done a great so job. On that deal with ESPN, congrats. Yeah, That's did amazing. a fantastic did a fantastic job, and they should be commended. The, the challenge is how does the MLS get a, a slice of that? Now, it's already becoming a very popular sport. The world has accepted women, at least the Western world has accepted women. And so it's become a big, even the clubs in Europe are all having women's teams now, you know? And, yep. and by the way, the best kids team I saw was the Barcelona girls. Okay. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, it's no longer going to be the U S domination in the women's game. Right. So yep. that, that's going to change. I think that the future for, MLS, which is going to open up other doors, is the future for MLS is that they they and Liga MX will probably merge, is my sense for things. Now you have a super, super league because you have, you know, almost 600 million people between the U.S., Mexico, Mexico. and Canada, yeah. right? Now, up to now, FIFA has said you can't have cross-country leagues, but they let it in the U.S. and Mexico. These are all things they allowed because they wanted soccer to grow. To grow in the market. Yeah. And you understand that. But now, how do you justify it in 2021 that, you know, as opposed to Holland and Belgium that want to merge? They, exactly. Or the Nordics, you know, Denmark, or the Nordics, Norway. Right. How do you say, oh, no, it's it's not OK for you but it's okay for the Americans and it's going to be the Mexicans soon too. And it's going to open up a whole league and, you know, don't think it's far off that, you know, El Salvador says, well, why can't we have a team in this league? And Honduras says, why can't we have a team yep. in Costa Rica? Why do we have to, our players have to play there. Why can't our country benefit from this too? And so, you know, you do see at a minimum Mexico, us and mexico becoming a league well that then will open up then it's going to be impossible for fifa to say no to no. border yeah right and it'll probably open up at that point you know relegation and promotion as much as people don't want to hear it i mean they've eliminated relegation and promotion in mexico effectively they don't right. even have it in america but then the FIFA people literally write a letter to Australia. It's the rules. You must have relegation and promotion. You can't make this up, right? <laughs> it's like, you can't, you can't make it up. How do you tell Australia you have to have relegation and promotion with a country only 24 million people, but you say in America with 350 million yeah. people, it's okay, you don't have to have it, right? 
So I think that there needs to be consistency and, and, or these, these big, big organizations are going to be challenged, right? Yep. You know, up to now they've gone unchallenged and they've, they've done what they want to do. But I think the, I think the future is there needs to be some compromise or these big organizations are going to be challenged in court. And I'm not sure they're always going to win. You see what's happening right now, the Spanish courts, uh, yep. the decisions on a super league, you know, and who knows where that's going to end up. Although I was a lawyer in my first life, I don't pretend to have an idea what the <laughs> hell's going on. But I think that, you know, I, I think what I would say in America is it will benefit greatly from the 2026 World Cup. But I think what the consequence will be that it'll be really a merger between Mexico, US and Canada. And, and keep in mind, the World Cup is very different than it was before. And, yeah. and this people need to realize this. In 1994, the World Cup was just growing up, okay? So they let us being the World Cup, my employer, was World Cup USA 1994. Separate corporation, separate from, separate from US soccer. Created this organization, one about, you know, one, listen to me, sound like a European. We, we earned over $70 million, put it in a fund and have been helping finance different things for the soccer community ever since. When I, we had our own sponsors, could make our own money, could do things. Now FIFA has changed that completely. Now the employees for the 2026 World Cup in 2022 are employees of FIFA. Yep. So, you know, if I were the venue director again, they would say, okay, you're, now your employer is FIFA. It's no longer World Cup USA. And so all the money now doesn't fold down to you, the World Cup USA. It falls to FIFA. So where people think it's going to be the most profitable World Cup by far, it will be. But just not for the country. Not for the country. It'll go to FIFA. And so what are they going to give in exchange to Mexico, the US, and Canada? I think they're going to give an exchange for that. Say, okay, fine. Give us do, the money. Do, we'll let do you, your own league. We'll yeah. let you do your own league. We'll let you make money this way. And, you know, the reality is that the kids on the street don't make these decisions. We don't make these decisions. Yeah. Owners make these decisions. And big bureaucrats make these decisions. So... I think the future is there's going to be a merger, probably be relegation and promotion at some point, but not right away. They'll no. make a lot, a lot of money first, and then they'll figure it out. <laughs> a lot of stability and stable revenue. What did, what did Giorgio say to me? It's the money, you moron. It's That's what he'd say to me. So Absolutely. Charlie, this has been a pleasure and actually too short. We Thank definitely you. need to repeat it. I'm truly honored that, that you took the time to, to share your life journey and your insight into the industry with, with me and the rest of the, the audience. And definitely we look forward to speaking again with you. I would uh, love to. Anytime. It was really, really a pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. Stay safe and best of luck with everything. You too, my friend. Ciao, ciao. Hey. 
This episode is brought to you, as always, by The Connect. The Connect is Raide Luis Baez. Follow The Intersection Podcast in your favorite podcasting platform. Leave us a review and share it with a friend. This will really help us be found by more of you interested in the topics of sports marketing and deal making. Until the next one.